Well, first confession, um, our sermon text is really, really long, so I was just getting that out there. It's like 1,125 words, which should take me about five minutes and 56 seconds to read. Uh, but I, I assure you my, my sermon is a little bit shorter than normal, so hopefully that'll kind of wash out. The topic we're discussing is really important, and the, the fullness of it is really found in the fullness of the text. So we are in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 and going partway through verse 10. In your pew Bible, if you want to follow along, which I always recommend, it's on page 1005, 1005, Hebrews 9, 1 through 1018. Now, before we read, though, let me ask you, how do you go about having a clear conscience? Maybe you just try to keep your nose clean, whatever that means, uh, and don't get into trouble. Good luck with that, right? Maybe you, when you do something wrong, you simply downplay it. You tell yourself and anybody who will listen that in the scheme of things, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Or perhaps you try to make up with your, your wrongs by doing enough right. But then can one right really make up for a wrong? One of the verses in our passage this morning tells us that one day we will all stand before our creator, the God who made us, and we will have to give an account for every thought, word, and deed. Now, some of you are quick to say, you know, my God would never judge anyone. But think about it. If God is God, he is the one who's created everything. He has a right to judge us, does he not? And I think deep down, we all want God to judge others, right? But just not ourselves. This morning, we'll see that God has devised a master plan through which you may live each day before him with a completely clear conscience. And it's the master plan that perfects us. Yes. How so? Well, let's read. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even when the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the presence and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section, called the most holy place, having uh, the golden art altar and incense in the ark and the of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant and it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seats above it of these things we cannot now speak in detail these preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed once for man to die and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desires nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for these, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word. It's, it was a long passage, but it highlights your master plan of salvation. It's perfect, for it makes us perfect in Christ. And that should change everything for us, including our consciences. May you, Holy Spirit, um, dwell in us richly now as we meditate upon these truths. In the name of Jesus, amen. A little over a decade ago in my hometown in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, they concluded a multi-year, multi-multi-multi-million dollar highway renovation project. See, Highway 40, it's the major corridor that connected the suburbs in the west with the downtown city center. And it had been decades, decades uh, since it was last improved upon. And so many new lanes and elaborate bridges needed to be built. And so a master plan was necessary, one which would create unhindered access from the suburbs into the city center. The plan that MoDOT came up with was masterful. Problem was, in order to complete the work, the highway itself had to be shut down for years. All the traffic, try to picture this, was rerouted through residential roads that paralleled the main highway. Nobody wanted to buy a house on that street. MoDOT officials tried to do their best to make these temporary thoroughfares as effective as possible, but the temporary roads would never provide the quality access that commuters longed for. Now, how is this analogy germane to what we're studying here? Well, Whereas the Old Testament sacrificial system provided a temporary road, so to speak, it only gave limited access to God. But through Christ, God opens up a major thoroughfare into a relationship with him. Here's the big idea the writer wants us to see this morning, that Jesus is God's master plan of perfection. So therefore, he alone can perfect and purify our consciences. This morning, we're going to kind of evaluate the temporary Old Testament system with the master plan that's ours in Christ. We're going to divide our time under three headings. They are location, duration, and contemplation. First, location. The writer wants us to understand that under the Old Covenant, God was using a temporary location for his mercy and his grace. The temporary plan of God had an earthly system for approaching God. There was an earthly place with earthly priests and earthly offerings. First, the earthly place. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, we read, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. In the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to erect a tent, a tabernacle, and later would come a temple in which priests would bring in offerings. The tent, as good as it was and as useful as it was, was ultimately a man-made tent in which God, in his grace, allowed to be set aside temporarily as a holy place. 
in verse 1 of chapter 10, it tells us that, that the tent and all that took place in it was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. If you recall from a few weeks ago, the earthly tabernacle, Moses actually patterned it on the true and real temple uh, tabernacle in heaven itself. This earthly tent had an inner room, the most holy place. In chapter 9, verses 3 and 5, we read it that, that the Ark of the Covenant, remember where the Ten Commandments are, was inside of the most holy place. The Ark was covered in gold, and on each side were these cherubim and gold with their outspread wings, and it was in the, between those where God made his presence to be seen and felt. That's called the, most, uh, the mercy seat. But access to there was severely limited. You and I couldn't go in there to meet with God. It was only the high priest, and then only one time a year. Imagine if he had to, could only go to work one day a week in downtown St. Louis. Well, similar reality here. But Jesus did not enter that earthly tent, but rather went into heaven itself. Chapter 9, verse 24. Here's what we read. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ himself takes us into heaven itself. No longer are there any barriers between us and God because of Christ's work. The temporary plan not only suffered from an earthly place, but also from earthly priests. Do you know this past February, a bombshell hit the Roman Catholic Church See, there was this priest, Father Andrew Zorango, hopefully I pronounced that right. He's from the Phoenix Parish. He incorrectly baptized thousands, if not 10,000 people over two and a half decades. See, instead of saying, I baptize you, he said, we baptize you. And so thousands of baptisms never really happened in the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church. Guess what his new job is? Tracking down all these people so they can be baptized again properly. This is a problem we face when placing our trust in earthly priests. Are they doing it right? Right? Think about it. Can we really have confidence in this earthly system? I mean, think about the, the Old Testament earthly priests had a number of deficiencies, right? Most notably was they were fallen human beings like you and me. They too were sinners. And so before they could minister for the people, they had to go and make sacrifices in the uh, tabernacle for their own sins before they can begin to work to offer sacrifice for the sins of others. On the annual day atonement, the, the high priest would first enter the holy place and with the blood of a goat and, and he would sprinkle the inner place with blood in order to purify himself from his own sins. And then if you know from Leviticus what took place, he would then go outside on the Day of Atonement and there's two goats penned up and he would cast lots. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. And one of the goats, the priest would then lay his hands upon and he would confess all of the sins of all the people and then he would let this goat called the scapegoat go free into the wilderness. Then the priest would return into the tent, take the remaining goat, and sacrifice it to make atonement for sin. Now imagine all that could go wrong, right? Imagine if you're one of the worshipers outside. 
Would you not wonder if the priest was doing his job right? What if he didn't follow all the details right? What if he slipped up? What if he messed up? What if he didn't confess all the sins but left a few out? How do we know he's not like the chef who drops your steak on the kitchen floor and then puts it on the plate? The writer points out that with Jesus, we don't have these concerns. Jesus is a sinless son of God. He is perfect in every regard. So we are to have clear consciences because of his work on our behalf. He doesn't need to first offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Why? Because he had no sins. Verse 12 of chapter 11 tells us, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. With Jesus as your perfect high priest, you need not worry if he dropped your stake on the floor, so to speak. So we see that with God's temporary plan, it involved an earthly place, an earthly priest. Lastly, let's see that, that there's this earthly offering that was involved in the temporary plan. Verse 22 of chapter 9. There we read, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This whole earthly system in which God drew near to his people, he genuinely did. It involved the shedding of blood of earthly animals. The problem with an animal sacrifice is that they were animals, not human beings. But it's people who sin. So an animal seems so insufficient as a substitute for human beings. And that's what we read in verse 4, chapter 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yes, understand this. God in his grace, under that old system, he allowed for such a substitute to truly atone for sins, but ultimately it was pointing to the future sacrifice of Christ. That was how those sacrifices were efficacious. And so for our consciences to be truly clear, the, the old covenant way will not suffice, will it? So, the perfection of our consciences on, is on the one hand, it's all about location, location, location. With God's master plan, the, the heavenly son takes himself, our perfect sacrifice, into the heavenly sanctuary. So, the temporary plan God had for his Old Testament people was deficient in its location. Now let's see how it was deficient in its duration. Have you ever had, dined out and had a really good meal? You know for sure your steak wasn't dropped. One in which you like think about it for days, like, wow, that was such a good dinner. What invariably happens? Well, the effect wears off, does it not? You begin to tire of hamburger helper. And you begin to long for another nice meal. And so before you know it, you've made reservations at Bobby Vans. So too, this temporary earthly system for gaining access to God the duration of the sacrifice, it didn't last very long. Think about it. One's conscience was cleansed, but only temporarily. No sooner had the priest offered up the sacrificial lamb and cleaned up the mess, and it was time to do it all over again. Chapter 9, verse 25 tells us that the work of the earthly priest had to be continually repeated. The high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Every year. Now, that's the Day of Atonement. 
but not just on the Day of Atonement, every day, every day except the Sabbath, all day, priests were busy, 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 going about the work in the earthly tent. As I mentioned in previous sermons, the the work of the priests were never done. There was no chair in the tabernacle, was there? Every day they woke up to the ringing of the alarm clock. They took the 655 train to the temple precincts. They put on their holy clothing from Sintas, and they started eyeing this day's sacrifice. Which bull should I take? Does that lamb have any blemishes? And then they, listen, they poured out their hearts. If they were faithful, good priests, they poured out their hearts into their labors, knowing that God was gracious and good and merciful. And that through the sacrifices that they were offering up, God drew near to his people. And he forgave them. And he cleansed them of their sins and their consciences of any sin. And then they took the 515 train back home because they're really tired. They ate quick. They laid their heads down and slept until the alarm clock woke them the next day. My friends, not so with Christ. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. How is it that Jesus can sit down? It's because he has offered a sacrifice once for all. Verse 14 tells us, For by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? We're supposed to as Christians. We're supposed to believe this and cherish this. And then in verse 17, the writer quotes again from Jeremiah 31, where he did before, um, where God makes this promise, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. God promised a day where there'd be such a sacrifice for sins that it never needed to be repeated. I know it's hard to comprehend, but Jesus' work is so perfect that it perfects you forever. Yes, sadly, Christians continue to sin. I continue to sin. And we will one day, we will continue to sin until that day we die or when Christ returns. But check this out. God knows this. That's why he had to get away with the old plan. He wants our consciences to be clear. So he sent his son a once and for all sacrifice. God knows our need. Jesus has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, I said this before a few weeks back. When you sin, Jesus doesn't get up from his chair, his throne in heaven, and make another sacrifice for you, as in the Old Testament days. Nor does he command you to go out and do some sort of penance to show that you're really genuinely sorry. No, he points to the cross and says, I know, I saw you, but I love you. And it's done. Now live with joy, with a clear conscience. Oh, that we would believe this. The duration of Christ's work for us is eternal. 
He does not need to get up to make any more sacrifices for you and for me. And there is no sin that, that the cross of Christ cannot atone for. His death on the cross fully satisfies now and forever. That's the location and the duration. Now for our contemplation. Let's put our thinking caps on. Let's try to bring this home. The writer intends for us to contemplate God's master plan of salvation and draw life-changing implications. And when we contemplate his master plan, on the one hand, it's offensive. But on the other hand, it's delightful. First, it is offensive. Why do most people reject the gospel? Seriously, why do most people, when you share with them the love of Christ for sinners, why do they reject it? We tend to think it's because most just didn't understand the gospel. That's why people reject it. No, most of the time people understand the gospel. The reason why people reject the gospel isn't because they don't understand it, it's because it offends them. How dare you say I'm a sinner who needs a savior? So people are offended by the gospel, for the gospel begins with the presupposition that no one is right before God on their own. In addition to that, people are also offended to hear that they themselves cannot fix the problem. See, even if someone agrees with you that they aren't the person they know God requires them to be, they insist that they themselves are capable of making things right. But the gospel is offensive because it says, not only are you not the person you should be, but you are incapable of fixing things. That's offensive. Can you see how that's offensive to people? Nobody likes to hear that they're flawed, and nobody likes to hear that they're incapable of overcoming their flaws. And this offends people on both ends of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum are people who insist that it doesn't matter how you live your life, so long as you're sincere, right? You've heard that? So long as you're sincere in your beliefs, that's all that really matters. They are offended by how the gospel says sincerity cannot save you from your sins. But then on the other end of the spectrum are the moralists, the do-gooders in the world. They agree that there is a way that everybody should live, there are rules to follow in order to have a blame-free life. But they're offended by the gospel because the gospel says all of your law-keeping really truly cannot cleanse your conscience. Because in all of your law-keeping, it's just really an elaborate plan to avoid God and his grace. So the gospel is offensive. But let me add that we Christians can be offended by the gospel too. How so? Is it not true that though we know we're saved by grace, we tend to live each day under the law, under rules, under things that we should be doing as Christians, and our consciences are clean or not, depending upon how well we do that, right? We tend to focus upon the good things we should do as Christians. And we use these good things, things like tithing and praying and serving, and we use these things to somehow cleanse our own consciences, right? If we have a so-called good day, then obviously we've read our Bibles and had a devotional, and maybe even spoke to somebody about Jesus, kept away from porn and gangster rap. We think about these things that we've done right, and we purify our consciences by our good works, or so we think. If you have a somewhat decent day on earth, then your conscience is clear before God. If you have a somewhat not so decent day before earth, your conscience is troubled. 
Do you see that in your own life? It's not just me, right? Here's what we need to understand. Christ and Christ alone is to be our only means for a clear conscience. So let me ask you, are you a follower of Christ whose conscience is either troubled or satisfied based upon what you do or didn't do during the day? And so do you either feel shame or peace based upon how you performed that day? Listen, this is not God's way. When we live this way, we're living as those who are offended by the gospel. <laughs> the gospel offends us, but it also ends in delight. Why is God's master plan of perfection delightful? It's because it's God's master plan, not ours. It's his plan alone that makes us perfect. Under the old covenant, that temporary plan could not make us perfect. That's what the writer wants us to contemplate in chapter 10, verse 1. It, that is the old way of approaching God, can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Contrast that with verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What a delight for our souls, right? One offering, one offering has perfected. You see that? It's past tense. It's done. The writer to the Hebrews has gone to great lengths to help us to see that in Christ Jesus, we have a perfect forgiveness of sins. And the more we comprehend just how perfect this forgiveness is, the more that we should experience the cleansing of guilt and the removal of shame. See, God's master plan is so perfect that the work of his son has made it so that God remembers your sin no more. He doesn't remember it anymore. Once again, verse 17, chapter 10, the author quotes the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, he's done so before earlier in this letter. God spoke through Jeremiah to his people about a day uh, when, he, when he completes his master plan. God promises this. He says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And then right after that, the author ends our passage, remember, with these words. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin." Contemplate this. God's master plan of our perfection forgives us in such a way that he no longer remembers our sin. And therefore, there is no longer any offering for sin needed from us. I know it sounds too good to be true, but it's true. And we desperately need to contemplate this truth and embrace it. Some of you here need to hear this. You're, you're not Christians, and you carry with you a sense of guilt or burden of conscience. I implore you to come to Christ right now. Cast your cares upon him. Allow him to take your sins into the heavenly realms and have them forgiven upon his cross. Most of us here are Christians, and our tendency, like the original readers of this letter, is to go back to the old system, to try to live in a relationship with God based on our own legalistic rule-following. The gospel says, in Christ, you have such a perfect, everlasting salvation. 
And so there is no need to work to keep your conscience clear. Do you, do you agree with that? But our hearts say, no, my conscience will only be clear if I have done what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. Listen, my friends, contemplate this. Your only hope of a clear conscience is Christ in your life, not Christ in your life plus your good works. Do not be offended by the gospel. Instead, as the great James Proctor hymn says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Listen, God is giving you such a perfect salvation. He's done this so that you would live each day with a clear conscience, not fighting to get one. That's what the writer of the Hebrew warns of. In, in chapter 9, verse 14, the writer calls these actions, he calls them dead works. He tells us just how much more the sacrifice of Christ should purify our consciences from dead works. To what? To serve the living God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that, that God purifies our consciences so that we may serve the living God. Problem is, we get it backwards, right? Think about it. We try to work to serve the living God so that we can purify our consciences. <laughs> Listen, our good deeds are not meant to cleanse our consciences. No, our cleansed consciences are meant to lead us into good deeds. Do you understand the distinction? So many Christians serve God in order to have a clear conscience, but it's the opposite is what our passage teaches us. God gives us a clear conscience through Christ in order to free us for service. Do you understand this? God wants you and me to delight in how wonderful his master plan is. So wonderful that just a single sacrifice is meant to, is meant to cleanse your conscience 24-7, 365 days a year. Christian, can you grasp how you need to apply this to your life? Picture two Christians. One gets up early to read her Bible so that she can start her day with a clear conscience. The other gets up early, and she reads her Bible too, but not to gain a clear conscience but rather because of God's master plan has already given her a clear conscience. Do you see the difference? This morning, I hope you have seen that God's master plan is wonderful. He has delivered us into a great salvation. Jesus' one sacrifice for all time is meant to give his people a continually clear conscience. Do you understand this? For us, his followers, the task at hand is to appropriate this work of Jesus into our lives. We have such a great salvation. Now, will we believe it? Will we receive it? Will we be transformed by it? See, the, the gospel doesn't just let you sleep well at night. It allows you to come alive during the day. There is a story of a hunter who's up in the frozen Canadian frontier and he came across an unfamiliar frozen pond that he must cross. And 
He was unfamiliar with the thickness of the ice at this time of year, so he, he went gingerly on hand and feet, intensely looking and listening for the slightest cracking in the ice. Can you picture that? He did not know if the ice could bear the weight of his body, so with great caution, he slowly moved forward on all fours. About midway through, he heard a tremendous crashing sound in the woods behind him. And then coming at breakneck speed was a carriage full of people, and it was drawn by horses pounding the earth. He watched from his childlike stance as the carriage raced towards him and then past him and then to the far edge of the pond, and it disappeared into the woods. My friends, God does not want his people to live like that Canadian hunter. We're to live like those in the carriage. Conscience is cleansed of all sin because of Christ. With no desire to get on all fours in fear of failure. Because of what Christ has done, we can live confidently, receiving the promises that God has for us, not living in fearful uncertainty. Don't look back, says the author of the book of Hebrews. Press ahead, knowing that the ice will not give way. Let's pray. Father, as so often as we sit under your word, we, in our heart of hearts, wonder, is this really true? Seems too good to be true. Heavenly Father, it's not too good to be true. It is true. You know us far better than we know ourselves. You know exactly what we need. In your love for your children, you desire cleansed consciences so that we don't need to approach you by our own works, but rather we just rest in your grace and live for your glory. Help us to embrace that as your people here at Grace Presbyterian Church. May we, may we not be on all fours uh, as we scurry on this earth in fear. May we, with joy and delight, walk upright. Um, for you, Christ, in your kingdom, we pray. Amen.